I read an article this week in, uh, in preparation for this moment that talked about preaching in a panic. And we're going to put this theory to the test today. Um, I don't know that I've ever felt so unsettled about a particular message than maybe this one, and we'll see if that's a good thing or not. Um, so lean in with me. Let's, uh, let's go for a little journey together today. First, I want to start with a little bit of a preface. I think maybe for the first time in my life reading these healing narratives of Jesus, these stories of Jesus coming and, and curing and healing, and we see these miracles happening. For the first time in my life, um, I was a little unsettled by the way that these readings lead us to a kind of ableist perspective of Jesus. Amos Young, he wrote this um, really beautiful book on how we ought to read the scriptures, knowing that we're not advocating for any kind of strange, ableist ideas. And he says this, he says that the normative, or what he calls the cited belief, is that God is glorified not in disability, but only in overcoming. That somehow the only time that we acknowledge the glory of God, the miraculous works of Jesus, is when he's taking those things that have been disabled in us and making them as what we consider to be right. And what's happened traditionally is that these have been used, these kinds of texts, subtly and not necessarily explicitly, but they get used in ways that actually lead to the oppression of people with disabilities. The Gospels, of course, are full of all of these healing moments of people who are ill and diseased, people who are sick and have all kinds of pathologies. And to be sure, Jesus, as the healer in these stories, is meant to be celebrated, is meant to be glorified, is meant to be worshipped. But then the question comes, what about those who aren't ill, they aren't sick, they don't suffer from disease or pathologies. What about those people? What about the people who aren't ill, but they are impaired? This is a completely different question altogether. Today, many of those who find themselves mobility impaired or sensory impaired, they neither want nor really need to be cured in the way that we see Jesus healing people in the Gospels. Oftentimes, these people are living full, satisfying, productive, meaningful, healthy lives. And so for them, Jesus as a healer in these instances becomes a kind of enigma, <laughs> becomes a kind of strange character rather than a source of their hope. So how should we read these kinds of texts where the blind are being given their sight, the deaf are made to heal? to hear, people who, again, are not ill or sick or diseased, but people who are impaired in some way. How do we read these texts with them in mind? Young suggests that we need a kind of shift in our perspective, one that understands that Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' healing are two distinct acts. That your wholeness in your body, your health and your wellness is not explicitly tied to your forgiveness. 
that Jesus is extending grace and mercy and forgiveness to everyone and that the healings that we see in these kinds of stories in the Gospels are not always for the ones that we think they're for. Carrie Wynn, she puts it this way. She says, forgiveness was for the sake of the faithful person with the disability. The healing was a sign for the unbelieving religious leaders. This is exactly what we see in this gospel moment today. Except in this story, the, the healing that takes place isn't necessarily for the unbelieving religious leaders. It's actually for the people who have been closest to Jesus all along. If you've been following with us these past several weeks, these stories in Mark, they come again and again and again where Jesus tells his disciples one thing and they don't understand it. Maybe it was just too opaque or maybe he, the parable was too deep and they can't quite capture it. And then there are times when he tells them things explicitly. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And they go, what does he mean? So over and over again, this is what we're seeing in these gospel passages. And this story today, remember, it falls right on the heels of this strange conversation that Jesus has with his disciples where two of them, they call them the sons of thunder, which it's like, if you're going to mess up, you might as well have a name like the sons of thunder. And they come to Jesus, remember, and <laughs> they say to him, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And remember how the story goes. They say, we want one of us to sit at your right, one of us to sit at your left hand in glory. What do you want me to do for you? So it's those, those people who were closest to Jesus, those who still couldn't see what Jesus was doing or hear what he was saying. And it seems, especially in the Gospel of Mark, that the people who are given sight to see what Jesus is doing, the people who can hear the word of what Jesus is saying are not the people who are closest to him. Not even the people, the religious leaders who ought to be hearing and seeing what Jesus is doing. It seems that it's the blind who are the ones who can somehow see Jesus without their vision. That it's the deaf who can somehow hear what Jesus is saying without any sound. And then we see that it is the beggars, the ones who have nothing, who are able to rightly receive Jesus as the Messiah. So this leads us to this story, this man of Bartimaeus. The fact that we know his name actually says something to us. I mean, how many times in the Gospels do these healings take place, these miracles take place, and the people who are healed, the people whose lives are changed, are just anonymous? And so the fact that we know who Bartimaeus is, we know where he comes from, he's the son of Timaeus, and that he's clothed in a certain way. Augustine says that all of these details, especially in the Gospel of Mark, are details that are meant to stick out to us. These aren't for nothing. And so if you're like me, you've heard this story before, the story of Bartimaeus, and the weight usually falls in one of two directions, right? Either there's an emphasis on Bartimaeus's commitment, his kind of desperation to be healed, or 
you've heard it this way, that the action of throwing off his cloak, which Mark emphasizes, that he's tossing away his, his status and his protection and his identity. We usually hear the weight falling in one of those two places. But what it seems the author of Mark wants us to see is actually what happens next. Where this healing and where this miracle actually leads Bartimaeus. Remember the text says that he follows Jesus on the way. We should ask ourselves, on the way to what? On the way to where? What's about to take place? And if you know this story at all, you know that they go from the moment of Bartimaeus' healing, Bartimaeus follows him on the way, and the very next thing that happens is the triumphal entry. The very next thing that happens is the beginning of the passion narrative. This is not good news for Bartimaeus. He starts to follow Jesus, and the place that Jesus immediately leads him is actually the place of death, the place of betrayal, the place of suffering. All right, stick with me. This is where um, we're wandering into some deep waters, all right? The next place I want us to look is just a couple chapters later. Our story today happens in Mark 10. Triumphal entry story happens in Mark 11. And this is just a little later on. This is in Mark 14. And this is Jesus praying in the garden. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and, ho and horrified. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little further, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he asked Peter, couldn't you stay awake even one hour? Stay awake and pray with me. Jumping ahead, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And his betrayer gave him a kiss. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one that I kiss, he said, the one who I kiss, arrest him, take him away under guard. And then one of those who stood by drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then they all deserted him and ran away. And then listen to this. Now a certain young man, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Wearing nothing but a linen cloth. And we should be asking ourselves, because Mark seems to care a lot about what people are wearing in the Gospels. Who was the one who threw off his cloak and immediately followed Jesus? 
this person of Bartimaeus, the one who's been given his sight. And what we're meant to see here is that in following Jesus, Bartimaeus has literally left everything behind. His family, his status, his name now. They don't call him Bartimaeus. He's known as the young man. His defenses, his protection, he's left it all. Now here's where we should experience a little bit of tension because so often when we hear these kinds of stories and we hear people making these points about abandoning everything, losing yourself to follow Jesus, we need to understand that losing yourself is not about abandoning your personhood. We have said this over and over here at Sanctuary, this line from Irenaeus, that the glory of God is man fully alive, contemplating the face of God. And if we're not careful, we can miss the whole point of what Irenaeus is saying. Jesus came to reshape and to redeem our human nature, not to destroy the parts of you that make you, you. (laughs) Who you are is needed. Who you are is welcomed. Who you are is wanted in the body of Christ. We don't need to lose all of those parts of ourselves that make us who we are in order to follow Jesus. This is what Irenaeus is getting at, that the glory of God is mankind fully alive. But here's the thing, being fully alive is not about you doing whatever you want to do. (laughs) Being fully alive is not just giving yourselves to every whim and every desire doing exactly what you want to do. Being fully alive is learning to live in a way where what you want and what God wants are not in competition with one another. That's what it is to be fully alive. And this is what it looks like to live life and life more abundantly. But this is where following Jesus has now led for Bartimaeus. And inevitably, it's what it means for all of us to follow Jesus, just like Bartimaeus. We kind of wish that this story ended with a healing and then an affirmation of our faith. Go, your faith has made you well. But instead, it leads Bartimaeus into a garden, leads him to a betrayal and then to a fleeing, naked and uncertain about the future. That's where he finds himself. I want to show you one more thing, and if um, you think we're reaching, (laughs) stick with me. Flipping over to Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they observed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe sitting on the side, They were amazed and alarmed. Don't be afraid, he told them. 
You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. So they went out and started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Hopefully by now, surely you see where this is going. We've all been taught that this young man in the tomb is some kind of angelic being, right? Is some kind of arbitrary messenger of the Lord But this is not the point that the author of Mark is trying to make. What we see, the words that are used to identify the young man in the garden are the exact same words that are used to identify the young man sitting in the tomb. This time, this young man is not fleeing. He's not afraid. Instead, he is in the tomb. He's living, dwelling in that place of death that's now been left empty. In Gethsemane, remember, he runs in fear. But in the tomb, he speaks to the Marys and tells them, don't be afraid. Why? Because he has learned what it is to follow Jesus all the way down all the way into that place of death and sacrifice. And now he knows the one that's gone before him, that he's been resurrected, he is not here. Go and you will meet him in Gethsemane, just like he promised. This young man has become a witness now to Jesus' life and his death, and his burial, and his resurrection. And if that language sounds familiar to you, this is exactly what's intended to happen to us in baptism. That we go down under the waters, joining Jesus in his life, in his death, in his burial, and resurrection. That's what's happening here in the Gospel of Mark, is that he is showing us what it is to be baptized. Not just what it is to be healed, but to be a disciple of Jesus. To dwell with Jesus, even when it leads us down into the grave. And then to point to where Jesus is. That's what it is to be a disciple. That's what it is to be baptized. And this is the life that we are all invited into. To remember your baptism, which is something that we actually do every time we gather to worship. When we say the creed together, we call it the Apostles' Creed. Historically, it's known as the baptismal covenant because these are the promises that we make. This is the life the story that forms and shapes how we live. To believe in God the Father Almighty. To believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. To believe in the Holy Spirit. And every time we say these words, we are remembering that we are the baptized. At certain points in our worship service, we make the sign of the cross over our bodies to remember that we are 
baptized. Remembering your baptism is to settle into your tomb, to settle into that death that we're all being led into and to give an answer to the ones who come to us asking where can we find Jesus? And we don't have to pretend we don't know. We can actually point them to the place where Jesus promises to be. For the disciples, that place was in Galilee. And for us, that place is every time we come to the table that Jesus promises to be present to us in the bread and in the cup. What's left for us now is to become the people who can point others to where Jesus is and where he's going to be. And what we find when we come is that we all come in the same way that Bartimaeus came to Jesus the first time. We all come with our hands open. We all come as beggars. We all come as people who are hungry, looking for bread. It's why when we come and receive the, the bread, we come with our hands literally opened in front of us because we are people who need to receive what Jesus offers us. We all come in the same way that Bartimaeus came and we're all led into the same life that Bartimaeus lived. One that follows Jesus into those hard, dark, difficult places like a garden. Oftentimes that means that we are the ones who flee because we're too afraid of what's about to happen. But if we stick with Jesus long enough, we'll find ourselves even in the tomb witnessing to where Jesus is and what he's done and the life that's made possible not only for us, but for our neighbors. We're all beggars leading other beggars to bread. That's what we're doing this morning. So we come pointing to where Jesus promises to meet us and to be with us ready to receive whatever life he offers us. Amen.